Are you a mom or a mom-to-be looking for tips to make wearing your mom hat a little easier? Hoping to become as smart about motherhood as you can be? Then you've found the podcast that leaves you a little smarter than before every time you listen to one of our expert guests. I'm cognitive psychologist and child development specialist, Dr. Amy Moore. Join us on a quest to becoming a brainy mom. Hi, and welcome to this episode of Brainy Moms, brought to you by Learning RX Brain Training Centers. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Moore, here with my co-host, Sandy Zamales. I'm in Colorado Springs, and Sandy is joining us from Virginia today. And all the way from Philadelphia is our guest, Dr. Jennifer Reed. Dr. Reed is a psychiatrist and award-winning educator with a practice in Philadelphia. She writes and podcasts as the reflective doc, sharing practical mental health information to those who may not have access to adequate care and support. She trained at Columbia University and UCLA and is on the clinical faculty at University of Pennsylvania. She's a regular contributor to Psychology Today, writing the blog called Think Like a Shrink, where she covers a variety of mental health topics, and she's here today to talk about sleep and insomnia. Jennifer, we are so excited to have you on the show today. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to talk with you both. So we have never actually covered insomnia or sleep issues, and so this topic is particularly dear to me because my daughter actually suffers with insomnia and has for years. Mm -hmm. But first, we would really love to hear about your background. Uh, What areas of psychiatry do you focus on, and why do you think it's so important for psychiatrists to speak up in the media? Yeah, no, I'm happy to to talk about that. So I come from a family of physicians. My father and grandfather were both sort of general practitioners in rural North Dakota. So they really were black medicine bag, house calls, you know, things like that. So I grew up within this concept of helping people coming to where they were really hearing their stories and trying to heal however we could. My grandfather could do less. There were fewer options back then. But it was always something I was planning to do and even started in internal medicine and just really found myself drawn to psychiatry and to the stories, to understanding people's reactions to illness. And so now the the primary work I do, I do a lot of teaching, trying to train other psychiatrists to go out into the world, Uh, maybe some back to my home state. That would be lovely. But I do a lot with people struggling with anxiety and insomnia or other sleep disorders. Those two often go hand in hand. It's not uncommon. Certainly with depression, I also treat there's a lot of insomnia or trouble sleeping. And for me, the interest I had was that so many of my patients maybe were responding to treatments I was providing for their depressed mood, their low energy, maybe their anxious thoughts, but their sleep was still really rough or really difficult. We know that can increase risk of relapse and things like that. So I just wanted to really dig into sleep and kind of figure out, you know, what is going on here? What are other tools I can offer? And then as far as speaking out, I mean, since the the pandemic hit, you know, being home, seeing patients from my home office, I was just really feeling like, how can I do more to help? I think there were just rising numbers, certainly youth, adolescents who were struggling with anxiety, insomnia, depression, Adults as well, obviously, especially, you know, moms struggling with all of these balancing acts during COVID. So doing the podcast and and writing is something that I've really tried to share evidence-based information, you know, things I've learned in my training that I tell my patients every single day. I wanted to get a chance to share that with a broader audience because so many people are struggling and there isn't adequate access always to behavioral health providers, right? Therapists or psychiatrists, certainly there's a shortage. So this was sort of my way to to try and reach out and connect. 
And I think it's important for us to do this because there's this huge wellness industry pitching all different kinds of ideas about what self-care looks like or how we you know, can treat our own illnesses, treat the anxiety or sleep. And they're not always based on information and sometimes really filled with misinformation. So I think getting more people like me out there talking, I mean, maybe psychiatrists are a little more reticent as a group to get out in front of a camera. I know it took me a while to get used to it, but I think it's just really important as we look at what's going on in the country. So I think it's interesting how, as you list some mental health struggles, insomnia keeps making that list, right? So you're saying anxiety, depression, insomnia, anxiety, depression, insomnia. So talk to us about the link between insomnia and mental illness. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So it's, it goes both ways, right? That someone who's really struggling with sleep, and I'll talk a little bit more about, um, if you want to, about kind of the basics of sleep and how it came to be and why it's so important for us. But people that are not getting adequate sleep, we don't know everything about sleep, but we know how important it is for so many functions of our bodies and our brains, whether it's how we metabolize food, whether it's our immune system, whether it's inflammation, whether it's how we handle stress, not getting adequate sleep or having really difficult sleep can really affect all of those health parameters. So it really can put people at risk if they have an underlying maybe genetic vulnerability to depression, or they've had an episode before or anxiety in the past, if they're not getting adequate sleep, it just really lowers that threshold for them to enter into a depressive episode or anxiety. And also it itself can really feel like torture, right? As you're moving toward nighttime, starting to dread, am I going to sleep tonight? What's it going to be like? Is it going to be as miserable as it has been? That itself can really escalate and, and lead to anxiety. And then we know if people aren't adequately treated for their sleep problems, their mental health issues can really worsen. So post-traumatic stress disorder, for example, if someone's gone through an incredible trauma, really getting good sleep can decrease risk of having eventually having PTSD, can improve symptoms of PTSD. And part of that is just that's a time that our brain's really processing difficult situations, processing memories, trying to kind of understand the world that we lived in during the day. So we need adequate and high quality sleep to process some of those even micro traumas that people experience throughout the day. So it's really important, both directions, both putting people at risk of illness and worsening an illness that's already in place. We certainly know sleep deprivation and changes in bipolar disorder can greatly increase risk of episodes, particularly of mania. So people that are traveling cross country and have jet lag and aren't sleeping very well and everything's turned around, that can be a really high risk time for them for mania, for example. So it just, it just cuts across so many different areas within mental health, within physical health as well. And we're increasingly understanding that in medicine. Yeah. So you, what's the difference between insomnia and sleep depri uh, deprivation? Yeah. So it's really important. I mean, when you think about sleep, it is such a powerful drive for us. We truly can't keep ourselves from sleeping for long periods of time. When they've done studies on this, they have a big sleep study um, center at Penn. They've tried to keep subjects awake for maybe a few days, maximum, maybe five to seven. And it is almost impossible because that brain is just going to put you to sleep. You have these little micro sleeps during the day, and it's just going to take the sleep eventually that it needs to survive because it's so crucial to our survival. So people truly can, and we've seen, unfortunately, prevent themselves from eating, really starve themselves more readily than they can prevent themselves from sleeping. It's just that powerful of a drive. 
So where we can get into trouble are a couple different things. Sleep deprivation really defined as like six or fewer hours in a 24 hour period, usually at night for most of us, you know, over a, a period of time. So weeks to months. And that is different than insomnia, which is really defined as just poor quality sleep. So you're not falling asleep when you want or as easily as you want. You're waking up more than you'd like. You're waking up too early. You're not feeling that rested. The differences are that with true sleep deprivation, and that might be because they're working two jobs, they don't have time to go to bed, or they're coming home and taking care of kids, or kids are up throughout the night, they don't have that sleep opportunity. We know some of those health risks that I mentioned earlier are are much more prominent. But insomnia really is not getting high quality sleep. And it's, it's worry about sleep. It's anxiety about sleep. So it's different. And people with insomnia maybe are getting more six or more hours of sleep. It's just that they're lying in bed for 10 hours and they're really frustrated because most of that time is spent staring up at the ceiling, things like that. So differentiating between sleep deprivation, which is like, how do we increase your sleep opportunity to get you in bed, lying down, quiet room for eight hours, ideally, versus insomnia, where how do we lower your anxiety about sleep? How do we maybe remove some of the things that might be interfering with good high quality sleep and really get you a good night's rest while you're lying in bed? So one seems behavioral in terms, like it's intentional. Okay. I'm only going to get five hours because I have A, B, and C that I have to get done during the day, Mm -hmm. where the other is um, a struggle that is, seems beyond your control. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So because sleep is such a powerful drive, there have to be things interfering with getting good sleep. And what can happen is anything that's stimulating. So whether it's caffeine, whether it's anxiety, whether it's excitement, something you're anticipating, my kids, before we take a trip, don't sleep very well. If there's something that's overly stimulating, either positively or negatively, that can really interfere with sleep. And unfortunately, because it's normal to have some rough nights of sleep here and there, what can perpetuate it is having more and more fear about sleep, because guess what? The fear itself is really stimulating. And it makes sense. If we feel like we're under threat, the last thing we need to do is doze off, right? We would not have survived eons that way. We have to be alert and aware and focused on whatever's creating that threat. The trouble is with anxiety, it's our own thoughts that are creating that threat. And so we're responding to that. So the work that we do is both behavioral and how we approach sleep, but also really trying to address some of those catastrophic or anxious thoughts that come up. I know I'm not going to sleep well tonight. And if I don't, I'm going to be a mess. It'll be a disaster tomorrow, right? I won't be able to function tomorrow. I'll be totally incapacitated. I talk with people and we look through like in the past when you've not slept very well, and this has been going on for you for a while, usually before they come to see me. How many times have you been totally incapacitated the next day? Like something really bad happened or you really could not function. And they look, think back and think, well, not, not very often or maybe never. I just was grouchy and I ate really badly and I just didn't feel like myself. It's like, well, yes, it's no fun. It's not good, but it's not catastrophic either. It doesn't have to be such a threat that it creates some of that stimulating, you know, trouble sleeping, trouble staying asleep. Yeah. So then when you dial back the temperature on those thoughts, then that that lowers the um, the stimulation that it's causing is what I'm mm-hmm. hearing you say. Yeah, I think that's a great analogy because it's also true just of general temperature in the room. We want it to be, you know, high 60s in the room, ideally, a nice cool bedroom. And it's true with those thoughts too. We don't want those really 
heated up, you know, my thoughts are racing, it's hard to quiet my mind, those kinds of things can really increase our stimulation in bed and make it hard to fall asleep. We also were trying to build a connection, you know, the sort of conditioning Pavlov's dogs and, and some of the behavioral conditioning that we've learned. Our brain is great at learning at all ages. Fortunately, it's still plastic when we're older as we age, but it really learns quickly to associate two things together. And if you start to learn to associate, I'm in bed, and that means I'm staring up at the ceiling, frustrated and anxious and angry, well, then your brain very quickly put those two things together. And so people might fall asleep on the sofa, be totally tired. They get into bed, boom, they're wide awake and feeling anxious and and kind of keyed up. Or maybe they go and travel and they're like, I slept amazing for that whole week in that hotel. And then I came home and it happened again. So we're trying to build really healthy associations with the bedroom. So we say, you know, the bedroom is only for sleep and sex. You know, you can decide on the latter, but really not for TV, not for screens, not for anything really stimulating, certainly not for lying in bed, feeling frustrated. And we encourage them if that does happen to get up out of bed, if it's maybe been a half hour or so, and just go somewhere else for a little bit, like literally move your body away to try and break that connection the brain is making between the bed and something distressing. So, so you're basically rewiring that connection so mm-hmm. that you're putting that frustration to a different part of your house <laughs> that you're going to work on that so that you can come back and mm-hmm. relax in the space where we're meant to relax. Exactly. It's supposed okay. to be an oasis somewhere where you feel really calm and just like, and then when I get into bed at night, I'm just like, oh, my husband laughs. I'm like, this is such a gift. Isn't it lovely? It's so dark and quiet and the kids are asleep. And I really see it as sort of this one amazing luxury. And I think that's what you're trying to nurture is where sleep, you see how powerful sleep is like the ultimate holistic remedy. When you think about all the holistic remedies out there, sleep is absolutely the top of my list. And my kids are so tired of hearing me talk about it, but it really is true. You know, I love what you said of um, high sixties for temperature. And I'm replaying this for my husband. <laughs> who's a, he's a chiller engineer. So he's all things air conditioning, but you know, we go back and forth about the temperature, but I've got, I've got proof now. (laughs) Yeah. We like it nice and cool. And if the body starts to cool down, that's why like a warm bath right before bed. And then your body cools down after that. And that can just help you go to that place of restful sleep. Yeah. I think I'll play this for my husband too. I sleep with a ceiling fan and a tower fan. Um, because I actually have nightmares if I overheat mm. in my sleep, uh, like where I will wake up screaming nightmares mm. um, from overheating. It's just this interesting pattern um, that I've noticed over the years, but my husband does not want to spend the money at night to keep the air low enough. And so I have to run these fans to keep me cool. And so I'm going to play this back for him as well. <laughs> yeah, there's a trade-off, right? If you're sleeping well, Think about who you are the next day. And actually, I would think he would prefer a well-slept version of you, you know, with a little bit of air conditioning billing versus some of the struggles we have when we're sleep deprived, right? Yeah, absolutely. So um, talk a little bit about um, some of the basics of sleep um, so that we understand really, like, let's go back to the beginning. Talk about some basics. Awesome. Okay. So... I'd like to talk about sort of two different sleep drives that we have, so to speak. So you have the circadian rhythm, which maybe you've heard of before. And interestingly, it tells us, you know, when is it daytime? When is it nighttime? When are we going to go to sleep? There are different hormones involved, including melatonin, which we produce ourselves. 
Um, and then people are, are taking that. We can talk about that a little bit later. But that really tells us when am I supposed to be waking up and when am I supposed to be falling asleep? And we all have an inherent circadian rhythm. That's why we have night owls versus morning larks and things like that. We have sort of a natural timing that would be optimal for us. The important thing about circadian rhythm, though, is that the, the circadian rhythms are within cells throughout our entire body. And that's why when it comes to even, you know, when you're jet lagged or you haven't slept well and you get kind of a stomach ache or you eat and it just doesn't feel quite right, maybe you're eating a meal at a different time, those cells throughout the body are keeping track of the time throughout the day. It's really an amazing process. So people who have to shift their time, maybe night shift workers or people who are doing a lot of international travel, that circadian rhythm really kind of gets out of whack because it still thinks it's this particular time. And here you are in a different time zone when the light is hitting you at a different time, you're trying to sleep at a different time. So you have your circadian rhythm and that does shift throughout life. So teenagers love this to hear this, but when they go from being, you know, my kids age to nine, 11 up to their teen years, they have a natural biological shift to later sleep times. They're just going to fall asleep later. So like a teenager falling asleep at 10 PM is probably like you and I falling asleep at 8 PM. It just, it's pretty early for their brains. And then of course, what do they want to do? Sleep in and then, oh, lazy teenagers get out of bed, get going. You know, you got to get to school. Fortunately, they're trying to work with those rhythms a little bit more and having school time start later, you know, throughout some areas of the country. And that just works with that biological rhythm. That's, that's normal for teenagers shifts back a little bit as we get older and then shifts the other direction as we get into our sixties and seventies, for example. So you have your circadian rhythm and then you kind of have your, your sleep drive that is sort of the buildup of sleep pressure throughout the day. And that is, there's a chemical called adenosine. There's many others, but adenosine, which is blocked by caffeine, talk more about that. But adenosine starts in the morning, starts to build up in the brain over the day. Usually they think it takes around 16 hours before it reaches a level where it kind of helps you get to sleep. So I think about like, we're filling up a glass of adenosine, so to speak, by the end of the day, the things that can take away from that are naps. So if we take a nap, especially late in the day, we're emptying that glass. So it's going to be take longer and be harder to reach that full glass, so to speak, to help you get to sleep. Caffeine blocks adenosine, so you don't feel that sleep accumulation or that sleep drive accumulating. But guess what? When it wears off, it's all still there. You get that crash of kind of post-caffeine crash if it wears off. Some people drink caffeine a little too late or it lasts longer as we age, and then that starts interfering with sleep. But you have the sleep drive building up, and you have the circadian rhythm, and they're kind of working ideally together. It's when they get off that things really start to be more difficult. And you'll feel that if you really try to change your sleep schedule. Suddenly, when I was in call and residency, I just always felt kind of sick. It was just like, oh, the sleep, the changes that are happening. And I think some people can negotiate that a little easier than others. My husband's a surgeon and he just seems to be able to navigate the changes in sleep better than I can. So I think it makes sense. I'm a psychiatrist who sees patients during the daylight hours, just a nice, reasonable schedule. So it's those two factors at work. And then just briefly about the different stages of sleep. So we have sort of REM sleep, which is rapid eye movement sleep, which is discovered by this really attentive grad student looking at his baby's eyes and seeing that the eyes were literally underneath the lids moving back and forth. And that's a particular type of stage of sleep. And then you have the non-REM stages, which are kind of light sleep, twilight sleep getting into deeper stage two. And now they've kind of consolidated three and four into stage three. And that's your deep, restorative, restful, really high quality sleep that you want to reach as much as you can. 
and can get a little harder to reach as you age. Just our brains change a little bit. So REM sleep is maybe when we have more of the dreaming that's happening. And really fascinating is that your body is essentially the skeletal muscles, not your breathing apparatus, your heart, obviously, but skeletal muscles are paralyzed during REM sleep normally so that you're not going to act out your dreams and whack your sleep partner in the face, right? As you're like doing battling a dragon in your dream. And so when that does go awry, people with REM sleep disorders, things like that, they can really be physically you know, violent, dangerous at night and can harm themselves in particular, but also anyone that happens to be in bed with them. So you have your REM sleep and these other stages of sleep. And where that really becomes important in a lot of my work is how medications can affect your ability to get these different kinds of sleep and your ability to reach that deep restorative sleep. So people that are on, you know, benzodiazepines like Xanax or Ativan or Clonopin can make it harder to reach those really deep stages of sleep. So they're not getting as good a rest. They maybe are falling asleep because it's sedating, but they're not maybe getting as restful asleep. Same is true of alcohol. If you have a few drinks, you're going to drink right before bed, that acts very similarly, can make it harder for you to get that deep restorative sleep. So maybe you slept nine hours after a night out and you still felt exhausted the next day. That can be why that's the case. You're just not getting that high quality sleep. Can so I interrupt you there that. and ask, mm-hmm. what's the mechanism there that's that prevents you from reaching those deeper stages of sleep because of benzos or alcohol? Yeah. So essentially, they both act on the GABA receptors that are in the brain, which are sort of inhibitory receptors. And just through that mechanism and the specifics of that, I would probably don't understand even as well as I wish I did. But through action on that inhibitory neurotransmitter of GABA, that decreases the ability to reach those deep stages of sleep. So it affects the ability to to reach those deep stages of sleep through its action on those GABA receptors. But those are also the things by increasing the inhibition of GABA that are sedative, that are anxiolytic, that bring down anxiety, that help calm us. The trouble is it interferes, as most of our meds do, with our sleep architecture. Like I said, those those different sleep layers. So a lot of our sleep meds aren't naturally mimicking our sleep architecture, they're shifting it somewhat. So if I can get someone sleeping well without medications, that's really the gold standard, in my opinion. That doesn't mean I don't prescribe to help with sleep, ideally for short term, if they're really having rough sleep, but I don't want someone on it long term necessarily, because I just don't think it's as high a quality sleep as they could otherwise be getting. Um, But there are just some cases where they need to be on something regularly and long-term when we're always talking about that. You know, are there any things we can do to help your sleep that we could try to come down on the dose or try to simplify things? Um, And that's really a goal I have with patients. So I know a question that our listeners are probably thinking about now is melatonin. Mm. And where, where does that fit in, in terms of helping? Yeah. And should they be on it long-term? Right. So, you know, melatonin, essentially what we're trying to do is mimic our brain's own natural production of melatonin, which it produces as the light starts to fade, pituitary gland produces melatonin, and that is a signal, okay, night's coming, right? So melatonin in general is not a sedative. So it's not going to be sedating like Ativan is, or even some of the other like Z drugs and things like Benadryl or those. It really is supposed to be a signal to the brain, okay, it's going to be time to sleep. So the trouble people run into, I mean, A, the data to support the use of melatonin to help with insomnia is there for like 
jet lag or um, shift work where you really have some disruption of circadian rhythm and you need to strengthen that signal somehow. It's also present in people maybe 55, I think, or 60 and older as that circadian rhythm strength starts to wane as we age just naturally because of changes in the brain. And that's really where the best data is for the use of melatonin for insomnia. Um, Otherwise, you know, sometimes it's more anecdotal or people say it really does help me. And we talk about pros and cons. I don't have a ton of data to suggest it for just your average adult who's struggling with insomnia. So I don't have a lot of data to support that use. I don't think it's dangerous. I think if we're going to use it, you want to find the optimal way to do so, which because it's a signal, you have to take it actually a couple hours, at least before sleep time. It's not like right before bed. And the doses that people are taking, if you talk to those sleep experts, they say, take a much, much lower dose. You really don't need five, 10 milligrams of melatonin, take like 0.5, you know, or some really low dose available and just a pure melatonin rather than a mix, like a sleep aid that has all these different things in it, ideally. But, you know, I I don't look at it as a very strong option. I think sometimes the placebo effect of it, or just the psychological comfort of saying, I'm taking something that's going to help with sleep. Guess what it does is it really targets those anxious thoughts. Mm. Now I know this is going to work, right? So I think there can be some benefit to it. I don't think it has a high risk of side effects. I think they're using it more and more in kids now. And, you know, I'm not not so sure whether or not I think, you know, that data is there for that, but I don't treat kids and adolescents. I only treat, you know, 18 and older. So it's not really something I, I talk that much about because it's outside of my expertise. But I think we have to really look at What's the data here and not just, you know, keep trying to throw different pills at, at the trouble of sleep, sleep issues. You mentioned that um, in the last couple of years with COVID, there's been a rise in insomnia. Can you speak to that a little bit? I'm really curious as to why that is. Well, I think it's, I think it's a mixed picture, right? If you really were to look across populations, you probably would see that there were some people, maybe teenagers, for example, that were actually getting more sleep maybe sleeping better because, you know, if the ones that weren't struggling with more anxiety, they were home more, fewer activities, they weren't staying out as late, they weren't having to, you know, they were doing their their homework perhaps and not distracted by other outings because they were sort of stuck at home. But I think in general, as you're seeing anxiety levels rise, I talk about insomnia with people is what we call referred pain. So something's happening in your life, whether it's anxiety, stress, change, transition, and where it's showing up is in your sleep. So that referred pain. So I think it's going to be important. Oh, <laughs> it's going to be important to recognize that we want to look around the insomnia and see what could be really contributing to that. So the stress of COVID and certainly look at populations that were unstably housed during that time, that their employment was in question, or they were really taking a hit financially, small business owners who were really struggling to make it work people who were then home with kids. And so they had to do their work in the wee hours of the morning because kids were with them throughout the day. So things like that can really, were really contributing to insomnia. So it's sort of a mixed picture, but those who maybe had never had it before were suddenly recognizing my sleep has been really hard. And because I'm just home all day, it's what I'm thinking about all day and I'm worrying about it and I'm dreading it. And so I think in those situations, those numbers have really gone up. Though not for absolutely everybody. And like I said, some people, the lucky ones may have noticed their sleep got better because they didn't have as many things that they had to be racing around and and getting to. Yeah, I noticed that um, I was able to sleep an extra hour in the mornings because I didn't have a commute. And so 
that's always exciting that you don't have to worry in the evening. Oh, I better get to bed because if I don't go to bed now, I'm not going to get you know seven or eight hours, which mm-hmm. I do want to talk about optimal um, amounts of sleep um, in a minute too. But I want to go back to this caffeine and adenosine relationship that you were talking about mm-hmm. as my uh, 17-year-old just delivered my uh, Starbucks to me. Um, <laughs> when your kids start driving. <laughs> Sounds amazing. And you pay for their gas and their car, then that means <laughs> you <laughs> tell them what to do with said gas and car, right? Anyway, um, it's become a joke that um, the only the only people that are allowed to interrupt us during recording is uh, uh, coffee delivery. Okay. <laughs> so you said caffeine blocks the effects of adenosine, but the adenosine is still accumulating during the day is what I heard you say. Okay. Exactly. So- is that a bad thing? Mm-hmm. Um, talk to us about the use of caffeine to help get through that second half of the day, or just l- let's just hear more because there are a lot of people like me who love their midday coffee. Mm-hmm. Right. So I think it really depends on individually how it affects you. So if someone comes in to see me, And we're trying to be a detective here and figure out why, even though they get into bed at 10, they don't fall asleep till one, then I might be talking with them about when their last cup of coffee would be. Or even, you know, as the people age, we may be a little bit more sensitive to caffeine. It may take us a little Mm -hmm. bit longer to break it down. So the effects last longer. So what used to be just a fine amount of coffee now is creating some sleep issues. But for someone who really doesn't have problem falling asleep at night at the time they kind of want to, to get a good night's rest and seven or eight hours is sort of what I say for adults. People kind of range around that. Um, There's some data for kind of health challenges or difficulties at lower levels, but even at significantly higher levels of of amounts of sleep as well. And sometimes that can also signal things like depression to me, but I would say if it doesn't seem to affect your sleep at night, we don't have data to suggest that, you know, if you're not having anxiety, if you're not having difficulty with sleeping or, you know, palpitations or other things that sometimes caffeine can create, I don't know that there are as data to support long-term health concerns of drinking caffeine. I think it's just a matter of how is it affecting you and how does it affect you over time? So, you know, for me, sometimes doing the afternoon, I got to the point where I had to have an afternoon coffee every day. And I just found that that made it difficult if I got really busy or I didn't have it. And I really felt the crash that we all naturally feel in the kind of mid afternoon. We just have a biological dip in our energy during that time. And I found that when I was drinking coffee in the afternoon, if I didn't have it, it was just so intense that dip. And so I've actually started to just do it in the morning. Maybe in the afternoon, I might have a tea or something with a little bit lower caffeine content. And that then prevents some of that crash that was happening later in the day, or if I didn't have that caffeine access. So it's sort of individualized. And some people can drink a ton of caffeine and not have any difficulties. Sometimes they drink a ton of caffeine because they're not adequately treated for other things like ADHD or some of those, but that's sort of a separate topic. But no, I don't, I wouldn't say, oh gosh, watch out with your, with your caffeine or be careful because there's a specific health risk generally, right? So I love that. Um, <laughs> let's talk uh, along those same lines about um, blue light um, or, you know, watching television or your iPad in bed. Is it the same 
type of advice? If it isn't creating a sleep problem, is that okay? Or are there other health reasons why one should avoid um, the blue lights in the evenings? I mean, I think typically, as far as I am aware, the health reasons are, is it interfering with quantity or quality of sleep? And part of that's going to be, how are you feeling the next day? So even if you're like, no, I'm getting eight hours every day, but like, wait, why am I so tired in the morning? It's hard to get out of bed. It's hard to get going. I don't have energy to exercise. I find I'm reaching maybe for more high calorie, like carbohydrates, because that's typically what we seek out when we need that quick boost of energy when we're really tired. So in, in, if that's not the case, and if you just don't seem to be responding to that, I mean, there've been studies where they've had someone reading on a Kindle or, you know, versus reading a book and that maybe they had a little bit more sleep or higher quality sleep by just reading the book. But again, that's a subset of people. And if it's not something that keeps you awake, you know, I think some people will just stay up and stay up longer than they would otherwise, because guess what? The things we're looking at on our iPads are meant to be really interesting and salient and meant to keep our attention and maybe meant to be stimulating. So I think, you know, it's something I would just caution to kind of be aware of, especially with teenagers too, because they already, like I said, are prone to later sleep time. So that can make it even more difficult. Um, but there's nothing that I am aware of about blue light inherently itself in the absence of any of the notable effects of sleep, poor sleep or, or being fatigued the next day. Yeah. So what's the relationship between sleep and the immune system? Um, I know my daughter's issue, she does have some autoimmune issues um, and that contributes to her insomnia. And Dr. Amy and I were even talking about autoimmune issues, but do they is it cyclical? Do they go hand in hand? Does one start the other? Um, what are your thoughts there? Right. So, you know, in thinking about, you know, our bodies have all of these different cells that form the immune system and what it does seem to be as far as, and this is something that's being studied every day so that the data is still being created, but there's a sense that there is increased sort of functionality of those immune system cells to work in the proper way, right? For people that are getting adequate amounts of sleep. So in the absence of that, I mean, there's some data that adequate sleep can improve people who've had vaccines and their ability to mount that immune response or that vaccine response to, to create the immune system. There's some data with where they actually sleep deprived people and looked and introduced them to like stuck up their nose, introduced them to a flu, you know, a flu virus or a cold virus. And they were much more likely to get sick if they had inadequate sleep, even for a short period of time in this study. So it really is that it can, even in, you know, very quickly over just a few days of sleep deprivation, for example, um, can really start to interfere with your body's typical ability to fight off illness. When someone has sort of an, an overactive immune system, you know, when you're dealing with things like inflammation, we also know that inadequate sleep can also increase rates of inflammation, whether it's through some of the different stress hormones that are released when we're not getting good sleep, because that's the body's sort of balancing mechanism. If we don't get enough sleep, our bodies are going to release more like cortisol and some of these other hormones that help us stay awake and help us keep going throughout despite, right? When you had, you know, when you guys had babies and you're in that sleep deprived state, you're probably having a lot of that cortisol produced just because you know, you have to be awake to, to feed or to do, you know, change diapers, what have you. So that itself can then lead to things like increased inflammation, um, which unfortunately is the body's way of fighting off illness. It's the immune system. It's just when it's overactive and you have excessive inflammation that can lead to problems, both physical, but also, you know, there's more and more links between inflammation and depression. So looking at, you know, sleep is really anti-inflammatory. 
So that's another thing to to think about. Talk about the relationship between sleep and hunger and weight gain. What? Yeah. Yeah. About that. Yeah. I mean, I think that's really important because, you know, you have these different kind of balancing acts, you have different um, hormones and, and peptides in the body that can be influenced by sleep. And what can happen just generally when you're not getting adequate sleep is that the hormone that tells you you're hungry increases and the hormone that tells you that you're full decreases. And so you're fighting against these changes happening in your body that are telling you, you know, I've heard it described as kind of crying famine even in the sense of a feast, right? Telling you that you're still really hungry. You need to eat more. You need to go out and find more nutrients because you're so exhausted. We need something to kind of boost us and keep us going, keep us safe, right? From threat. So what can happen is you just have a change in how you're metabolizing, a change in how you're creating calories. The type of calories you're craving is going to be a little bit different. Like I said, you see those higher caloric quick fix, right? Quick junk food kind of fixes you're really craving doesn't mean you have to eat that. I mean, you obviously we're all trying to kind of battle that. It just makes it that much harder to resist things that are kind of those quick calorie foods. And then, like I said, with the circadian rhythm, you do have some of these cells in your stomach, in your gut, and it sort of prepares and anticipates meals at your regular meal time. And it does that by kind of preparing your body to properly metabolize the food, right? Releasing insulin, helping you store it in the right way. And that can really be out of whack if we're not getting adequate sleep, our sleep schedule's changing a lot. And then that can lead to problems with, you know, how we're metabolizing the food. And maybe it's stored, more likely to be stored as fat, for example. Then you have things like sleep apnea, you know, where people are not getting adequate sleep. They're having for some reason or another closure of like their soft palate, or they're just having these apneic episodes where they can't breathe or they're not breathing. And that can really interfere with high quality sleep. And it can be very difficult for people with sleep apnea to lose weight while it's not adequately treated because they're still not getting good rest. And that's really what they're going to need, not only to have the energy to, to exercise or to have, you know, resist some of these different foods, but just metabolically, the body's going to change with sleep deprivation. So it's almost a double whammy effect. Not only does it change the hunger um, signal but it's changing your ability to metabolize calories that you are eating. So you, it's not just about, well, I can ignore the signal that I'm hungry, right? Because I'm tired. And so my body just thinks it wants to eat. It's actually physically changing your ability to metabolize calories. Right. To really break it down in a way that you can store it as, as things that are later reusable versus, you know, storing it as fat, some of these other things. I mean, our body is amazing in its ability to protect us in sort of times of famine. Trouble is sometimes sleep deprivation mimics famine in this sense, and our body stores more things than we really want it to. We'd like it just to, to burn those calories off. About sleep and learning. Um, you know, a lot of our moms, most moms really want their kids to get that sleep and teenagers, of course, sometimes skirt that boundary line. Um, but how does lack of sleep affect memory and learning, especially for our teenagers and, you know, uh, early 20s college students, um, just people who tend to get maybe less sleep because they're staying up later, but they're still kind of in a learning phase of their life where they're trying to acquire information and hold that information. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think back to college and think if I would have slept more, maybe things <laughs> would have been easier. 
No, I think it's absolutely, I mean, the the general statement I'd make is that it absolutely has a powerful effect on learning and memory. Like I said, a lot of what we do with memory consolidation and really consolidating learning is happening while we're sleeping. So the idea of pulling an all-nighter before a test is sort of the opposite of the best approach. In fact, what I would say is, you know, maybe study right before you go to sleep so it's all fresh and then get a good night's rest absolutely before the exam. We know that it can really drastically, especially six or fewer hours, can really drastically decrease our concentration, our ability to focus our attention and think clearly and respond, react. The challenge with it, though, the worrisome part is that we don't realize it. You know, when we've done some of these studies and they've sleep deprived people, their reaction times have significantly dropped, but their perception of their reaction times hasn't changed. So they think they're functioning just fine. So that's really what can be worrisome as they may not recognize how limited that is, right? And so if you put someone who maybe is both sleep deprived and has also used alcohol, for example, that can really interfere with their reaction times. But just being really sleep deprived itself can be as high risk as as driving after drinking, because again, we have this really significant diminishment in our reaction times. So thinking, learning, consolidating information, all of that is really helped by, I would say, gosh, max, I mean, a minimum of say seven hours of sleep, six and a half, seven hours of sleep, and really talking to kids about there's, you know, some data on like motivational interviewing within kids and how do we help them figure out why sleep is actually good for them, right? Like what would it feel like if you weren't so tired all the time? Or what do you think would happen if you felt really good the next day? Like, how do we bring it up in a way that it really is meaningful to them? Why would they want to maybe miss out on a party once in a while in order to get a good night's sleep? It depends on what their goals are, right? What they're interested in, what's important to them. Athletes, there's some data that musculoskeletal injuries might be a little bit higher risk with people who are sleep deprived. Students who are really trying to do well, want to really, you know, do a great job on that SAT or what have you. It really behooves them to get a good night's rest. You know, someone who's really trying to stay fit. I mean, aren't we all, especially as teenagers, really worried about our appearance and trying to maintain a healthy weight and feel like we're fitting in? Again, that can all be affected by sleep. So I think understanding, especially with teenagers and people in their 20s, where they're coming from and what their goals are, that can be a nice way to sort of help work together and motivate them to make changes instead of just saying, like, go to bed, you know, it's time for bed, go to bed, you silly thing. Like, you know, kids don't often listen to our, um, best recommendations. At least mine don't. I don't know if yours do, but. So what I hear you saying is that the brain is actually, um, not sleeping while you're sleeping, that it may be reorganizing the information it collected during the day, um, and making it more efficient, um, and trying to, you know, file it away in that, you know, knowledge bank area of our brain. Is that kind of what you're alluding to that, you know, our brain's actually busy while we're sleeping. And when we la- we deprive our brain that time to reorganize all of the data it collected in our waking hours, it really hinders um, making those strong uh, neural connections. Absolutely. I mean, the anecdote I share about that is that my older son who loves to sort of turn these things back on me, I said to him one night, you know, you've got to get to sleep. You've got to rest your brain. It's going to be a big day tomorrow. And he's like, well, mom, my brain's not really going to be resting. It's going to be working all night. So what's, you know, what's the difference? I'm going to keep reading. So like, it's not, not a perfect solution, but I think absolutely that is true. That the more we learn about what's happening in our brains and bodies while we sleep, the more we're going to see sleep deprivation as a really important health concern. I mean, it's already getting much more awareness, but I think it's even in Denmark that it's seen as 
you know, people can get disability for working shift work, like the night shift nurses, um, because it's seen as a risk for cancer in the setting of persistent sleep deprivation as a result of shifting shift work and things like that. So it's increasingly, I think, being seen as a really uh, dangerous thing to, to do over time. So you mentioned naps, um, and I think it was in the adenosine talk that mm-hmm. it kind of interrupts that uh, adenosine bucket filling process. So talk to us about naps, power naps. Are are they good? Are they bad? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I love a good nap. And once in a while, it is just the absolute best thing in my day. And my kids are like, naps, no way. And I'm like, you guys have no idea. They're so good. So I think it's really about when and maybe for how long you're taking a nap. You know, my grandfather used to come home from work at his clinic. He would have lunch, he would take a quick nap, and then he'd go back. And the kids just knew all six of them, they had to be quiet during that time. And I really think, I mean, certainly there are cultures, Spain, for example, where the siesta is really um, involved in their culture. I think naps can be really helpful. I think keeping them to 20, 30 minutes, again, so you're not dropping into those deep stages of sleep where you wake up and you just feel totally out of it and groggy and not not great. So a quick 20, 30 minute nap, I think can absolutely be restorative. Again, if you're finding that kind of helps your energy for, you know, during the day, absolutely. I think it's reasonable to do that. It's just where it maybe starts to interfere later in the day. It can be trouble. Long naps can be trouble. Um, some of those things, but I think a quick power nap And in fact, there was a study done at Penn where they had shift workers who were working the night shift take a power nap just before their shift and really found that that helped them function and be able to do their jobs and feel awake and alert better throughout their shift. So I'm all for a power nap if it's something you're able to to do, even just to lie down for 20 minutes. You don't necessarily have to fall asleep, but taking that minute to rest, I think is very reasonable. And as we age, increasingly necessary to kind of reboost our energy. So what are the mechanics of that? Why would a shorter nap feel more refreshing than that three-hour long siesta (laughs) where I feel drunk if I do that? Then my whole day is shot. (laughs) Well, you know, it's that you you go through kind of like 90-minute cycles to kind of drop down into those deep stages of sleep and come back out again. And so if you're waking when you're still in one of those deep stages of sleep, whether a phone rings or a kid wakes you up or, you know, a dog barks or something like that, you're trying to come back out of these really difficult stages, deep stages of sleep. The same thing can happen if you're awakened in the morning by alarm when you're in that stage. It can feel really hard to do so. So it just seems like kind of staying in the twilight or maybe just stage two sleep for shorter periods of time, not entering that deep restorative sleep that you would get at night can be helpful. There are some, you know, minority, but some people who will take a significant nap during the day, and that's just incorporated as their sleep time. They don't sleep as much at night then. And I think that can work for some people, but many of us have to be awake throughout the day, daytime hours. So that's not a very feasible way to get adequate sleep consistently. And that's where I think it can cause some trouble as well, is that it can break up your nighttime sleep, you know. Okay, so that, that's an interesting um, topic. Well, first of all, I know that feeling of falling into that deep sleep in the middle of the day and then being awakened by your alarm and you're like, who am I? Where am (laughs) I? What day is it? Right. That's really Mm -hmm. hard to overcome. Um, But let's talk about um, people like new moms Uh, and the advice is always sleep when the baby sleeps. (laughs) Well, 
there are other things you need to get done sometimes too when the baby sleeps. Like, oh, I don't know, a shower that you haven't had in three days or something like that. Mm -hmm. But if that's possible to work that into your schedule, does having a cumulative number of deep sleep sessions have the same benefit that than a solid night of of deep sleep. Yeah, you know, I don't know if we have a definitive answer for that. I think there have been times historically where there were were sort of two chunks of sleep and people would be up in the middle of the night writing or creating or working or having a meal or what have you. So, I don't know that we have that answer. Maybe it's out there, but I think that Ideally, we want to try and get consolidated sleep so that we're able to go up and down into these different stages. You know, if it's broken up, we're more likely, it's more likely to be broken up in the middle of one of these so that we aren't getting as much of some of those deeper stages. Yeah, sleep when the baby sleeps. I mean, that's a really, I heard someone say, well, maybe just cry when the baby cries too. Like that's about as helpful as that statement is. (laughs) And it absolutely is. You know, I think some of the different options, I mean, I'm working with women who may be a little more vulnerable to postpartum depression or anxiety. And so we are talking about, are there ways for you to get any break at night? Even if you want to exclusively breastfeed, can we pump and have a partner give a bottle? Some women will even have night nurses if they're really vulnerable, especially women who have like a history of bipolar disorder. I'm going to be a little bit more assertive and saying, look, how do we try and continue to get you adequate sleep? And someone who's struggling with postpartum depression, how do we make sure that we're going to get you some sleep? And that often might be trying to invest other people into it, right? And even if women don't feel like they can exclusively breastfeed and still get some sleep, well, then we talk about the pros and cons of introducing some formula feeds, for example, and just recognizing that the mom's health and stability is really important for that baby and even more important than the absolute difference between exclusive breastfeeding and adding you know, formula in. So it's always, how do we find ways for you to get some rest? And if she can take a nap during the day, awesome, right? I still wouldn't let it be a really long nap, honestly, because I think then she's going to wake up feeling worse, but I would certainly, you know, try to do something like that if at all possible. But again, we have so much cortisol. We're so fired up. We're so stimulated by this new baby and sleep deprivation itself, that it can be really hard to do that. So, you know, I get it ladies. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Okay, so we need to take a break. Uh, Let Sandy read a word from our sponsor. And when we come back, uh, we want to hear about your podcast. Are you concerned about your child's reading or spelling performance? Are you worried your child's reading curriculum isn't thorough enough? Well, most learning struggles aren't the result of poor curriculum or instruction. They're typically caused by having cognitive skills that need to be strengthened. Skills like auditory processing, memory, and processing speed. Learning RX one-on-one brain training and structured literacy programs are designed to target and strengthen the skills that we rely on for reading, spelling, writing, and learning. Learning RX can help you identify which skills may be keeping your child from performing their best. The Learning RX team would like to help you get your child on the path to a brighter and more confident future. Join the growing list of more than 100,000 children and adults trained at LearningRx. Give LearningRx a call at 866-BRAIN-01 or visit LearningRx.com. That's LearningRx.com. And we're back talking to Dr. Jennifer Reed about sleep and insomnia. 
Um, so Jennifer, what are some ways that our listeners can hear more from you, uh, learn more from you? You've got a podcast, right? Tell us about that. Yeah, I do. I mean, how fun is podcasting, right? We love it. Really... <laughs> I, I joke that that for me, it's sort of an introvert's dream that I can invite these really amazing people to come on and have this lengthy conversation with me where I get to ask all the questions I want. I really get to hear their their answers. So it's been really fun. What I'm trying to think about is, you know, the, the girl I was in rural North Dakota, I mean, at the time there were no podcasts, obviously, but the sense of how do I reach people who maybe are you know, trying to figure things out or confused or struggling, and maybe they have access to podcasts. I think it's such a wonderful opportunity. It's free. You can find it. You don't have a subscription for mine. So it was a way for me to try and get some of this information out there. And I get to bring on other therapists, other physicians to talk about things that are really meaningful and the ways that they are helping, right? And giving just some concrete tools, like something practical, you know, so I had someone on recently, we talked a bit about nutritional psychiatry. What are some of the different foods that there's some data to support can be helpful for brain health, right? Which works nicely with sleep. We like sleep and good food and then, and there you go. So it's just an opportunity to get this information out there. I get to have these really fascinating conversations. I spoke to this woman who was in Australia about sort of the myth of low female sexual desire and how some of that is really more culturally or socially mediated. And that was just a really fun conversation. So it's called the Reflective Doc Podcast. It's on, I guess, Apple and Spotify and those. And um, I also have the website, thereflectivedoc.com, if they want to check it out. I love your tagline. Uh, your mind should be on your side. Explain that to us. What were your thoughts for that? And how did you come to that that tagline? It's so catchy. Oh, thank you. Well, I think that it's something that I, I've seen across my practice. I mean, certainly felt my myself in, in times of anxiety or lower mood is that we can be such difficult criticizers of ourselves. And so people who are really struggling with their own minds, whether it's that anxious mind, that mind filled with guilt, that was my recent podcast I recorded on just how much guilt we're all feeling and how to cope with that. So if you can really be supporting yourself, if you really can have this internal voice that is a motivational positive force, as opposed to like a super critical, awful, like high school gym coach, who's telling you you're never good enough. I really think the more that you can have your own mind on your side, the way that you respond to the world and, and exist in the world can really be much healthier and, and overall better. So that's my goal in working with patients and even sharing this information is like, how do we get our minds on our own side so that we can move, move forward and make positive changes in the world? I love that. I do too. Is there anything that you haven't gotten to say uh, to our listeners that you would like to leave them with? Well, I think that, you know, again, there's so much information out there about wellness, about self-care. And I think there are people doing really terrific things. There are other providers, psychiatrists, therapists who are writing, who are out there. There's so many different modalities and ways to get that information. So you're never totally alone, right? There's also recently really important is the 988 number that you can actually dial for mental health emergencies, or if you need to talk to someone about a mental health crisis, just dialing 988, just as you would 911. And you should be able to reach a counselor or someone who can support you or give you some information. So I love that they simplified that. It's much easier now than the longer suicide hotline. And so don't hesitate to use that if you need support you for you or your family member or loved one. Are there resources that um, listeners should ignore? <laughs> 
Well, I, I think that it's just looking at some of the different social media influencers um, with, with just some skepticism. Make sure that you understand kind of where that person's coming from. If they're pushing a particular product, you know, do they have any background or training or expertise in some of these areas? Because there are people out there, there that are on social media that are putting out this information that have been working in this area and do kind of have that background. So it's just having some healthy skepticism for some of the suggestions out there. And I think when claims are just so broad and so general and so amazing, just just being a little bit skeptical about that and kind of looking into it. And there's always good resources like your primary care provider, someone like that, who you can kind of be like, I was reading about this special candle that's supposed to like get me eight hours of sleep. Like, what do you think about this? Um, because there, there are people out there that want to help, you know? Right. We always ask, what's the research behind that? So mm-hmm. if you can't find any. <laughs> Exactly. Maybe we need to wait a little while before we adopt that practice. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And then it's understandable. You want to try and fix this. You want to feel better if you're suffering. Absolutely. It's just making sure that you're not stumbling into something that could make things worse. Right. Yeah. Well, we are out of time um, and need to wrap up, but this has been a fun conversation. So informative. Um, We want to thank our guest today, Dr. Jennifer Reed, for sharing her wisdom um, and all these tips. So if you would like more information about uh, Dr. Reed's work, her website is thereflectivedoc.com. You can find her on LinkedIn and Instagram at thereflectivedoc. And that is also the name of her podcast. Um, We'll put all of those links and handles in the show notes for you. Thank you so much for listening today. If you liked our show, we would love it if you would leave us a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform that you use. Um, If you would rather watch us, we are on YouTube and you can follow us on every social media platform at The Brainy Moms. So look, until next time, we know that you're busy moms and we're busy moms. So we're out. Have a great week.